You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. All right. With that, I need to pray one more time before uh, we get into the scripture this morning because I, I know I need it. God, I, I come before you knowing I need it because, look, I, I have to admit to you, Father, that I'm in the same state of languish everybody else is. Well, I woke up this morning for myself feeling like I, I just would rather, and for me, I filled in the blank, I just would rather have a stiff cup of coffee, and I wish I could just watch church online. But I, I can't uh, because I'm blessed with the joyful responsibility of being a pastor, a shepherd of this church. So I, I get it. I, I feel the same state of language that everybody is feeling. And so I need you this morning. God, would you use me in my weakness, in my state of unshaven, PJ-robed state in my heart to be able to convey what your spirit wants to convey, that it needs to be conveyed. And so, God, meet all of us together through the text as we meet with the risen Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In Matthew 18, verse 1, we read this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, or in the Greek text it actually would read, if your hand or foot causes stumbling, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, again, it's more literally causes stumbling, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heavens always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is God's beautiful, amazing word. So it's a Sunday morning here at Faith Community Church, just like any other Sunday-ish, right? Kind of same like any other Sunday. But imagine that someone came to worship without having parked a car in the parking lot because they ended up 
out of their own need. They had to walk the entire way to come to Faith Community Church. And they come in and they sit down and they have a seat and they are put, as put together as they can possibly put to be put together. And by that, I mean that when I take a quick glance at them, I can tell probably this is a person who's living somewhat on the margins here in Santa Cruz County. Also, I want you to imagine that on that very same day, someone who um, did park a car and park, let's say it was a Model uh, S, a Tesla Model S, and they park it in, in the parking lot and they come in and they look put together like they are dressed for success per Santa Cruz's casual specs for looking successful, right? You know what I'm talking about? They're dressed for that kind of success and, and they carry... You know how people just do? They just like carry an aura of being someone. And they come in and they have a seat. Now imagine that after worship's over, I eagerly, I chat up and I invite out for coffee the person with the Tesla Model S. And I completely overlook the person that I can tell is living on the margins. Just, just a kind of an imaginary experience. Let me ask two questions, first of all, of that imaginary encounter. One... Does that actually happen in churches? Answer, it's actually as old as the church. In fact, Jesus' half-brother James, I'll put it up on the screen. Here's what he said, said about it. He said, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, hey, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man, you say, hey, you stand, or you stand there or you sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the first question to my imaginary story, does this actually happen in churches? Sadly, it's as old as the church itself, going back to the first century. Second question about it is, could Andy, could I actually do such a thing? Maybe I'll get an email saying, you actually did it to me. And if that's the case, I, I, I'm, I would be honored to hear how I've failed. I Thinking about it this week, I cannot remember ever doing such a thing indeed. But I do have to admit that I make these kinds of assessments of people in my mind and in my heart all of the time. I don't like to admit that I think I would probably treat people in this church differently if I knew how much you give. That's one of the reasons why, as the lead pastor of the church, I don't want to know the specifics of what people give, because I know myself, and I know my weakness, and I don't want to have to admit to you, but I do have to admit to you, that if I knew what people give, I'd probably treat them a little differently. Ah! And I don't like admitting my need to, still at this age of my life, to grow out of my propensity to think I know someone's story, and to think I know how they got there, if you know what I mean by there. I don't like admitting how easy it is to move toward people I think will give me something in my encounter and move back away from people that I think are going to require something of me. If I may ask, what are you seeing in yourself as I'm admitting some uncomfortable things about myself? Do you see how much the atmosphere of the sizing up kingdom That's the kingdom we're living in right now, the sizing up kingdom. Do you see how much of that atmosphere has gotten into your own lungs? And because it's in your lungs, it's now it's flowing through your bloodstream as you size yourself up 
As you're still sizing yourself based on how you think people have sized you up and determined your rank in the world, as you realize it's in your bloodstream how you size other people up based on how the world has taught you to size other people up and to rank them. Just think about this for, for, just for a minute. Just think about it. Due to this nasty habit of sizing up human ranking, just in your life, how many people do you think, as you look back over your life, how many people do you think you've hurt because you've ranked them too lowly? Or let's flip it. How many people have hurt you because you ranked them too highly and you rushed headlong into relationship with them because you thought they were ranked highly and they hurt you? How many pivotal acts of compassion have we missed sharing that could have been pivotal and changed somebody's life? And we missed out. How many dear friends have we missed out on having in our lives because of this ranking of high and low rankings when we walked into a room with people? How many beautiful moments of blissful grace have we missed giving to other people because of this ranking thing? Today, we're continuing this study, Come, Follow Me, where what we're doing is in this fall season, we're going through the book of Matthew, but very specific. We're trying to find these intimate conversations that Jesus had with the 12, where either he or they are pulling each other aside to have like a, a little bit of a huddle. And we're, we're looking at those kinds of conversations. And thus far, our apprenticeship to Jesus has told us some things, at least for me, like I, I've been saying, if this doesn't give you any value, fine with me, because I've been getting a lot of value out of what I've been studying. I need to, we need to double back and look again at what, what is Jesus about? And so what we've learned is, remember the very first scene was where Jesus pulls a series of the disciples along the Sea of Galilee, and he says, come follow me. And what we said is the first thing that's the mark of a disciple, something we're all having to reassess all the time, is to re-engineer your life around the rhythms of following me. Not following culture, not following a rock star, not following a rock star pastor, not following a rock star politician. Re-engineer your life around the rhythms of following me. The next scene that we saw that was an intimate scene where Jesus is walking along with his disciples and he sees people who are harassed and he's moved by the harassed level of their lives. And he says, man, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we heard in that that Jesus' call is to pray that God would raise up workers to go into the harvest field and be one of those workers. That's what a disciple does. In the third scene, we saw the disciples pull him aside because he starts talking in parables and they say, what, what, why are you talking in parables? We don't get it. Why do you need to talk? Why don't you just, just make it like a, a recipe and just be really clear about what you want and what you're trying to do? And Jesus talks about why he does parables. And in that, we heard the call from Jesus. My disciples have a heart that is ready for active listening of me. Active listening all the time for the rest of their lives. And then we get to another scene. And then the fourth scene, we saw how the disciples were uh, walking along and Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And then they end up in this conversation about who is he and what's he all about? And Jesus, we heard his call. I don't want people who glance at me. I want people who gaze at who I really am and what I'm really all about. And that that's the mark of their life for the rest of their lives. They're not glancing, they're gazing. And then last week, Jeremiah did a great job talking about Jesus' call. That one of the marks of my disciples is they are people who forgive as they have been forgiven. That's a lot to try to process, and I'm going to add to it today. So 
This takes us to our text this morning. And here's where we are. Jesus and the disciples, they have another intimate huddle. But this time, Jesus isn't the one calling the disciples aside into the huddle. The disciples call him aside. And what we read in the text in verse 1 is it says, Matthew tells us, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. That time. What was that time? What's that time? Well, thankfully, some of the other gospel accounts tell us a little bit more about what that time was. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, it says that the disciples were walking along the path, and Jesus was somewhere within earshot, and they were walking along the path, and they were having a debate about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus becomes king. Who's going to sit where? Who's going to have the best slices of meat? I mean, they were having a debate about who was the greatest. And Jesus overhears it, and he asks them in Mark 9, what are you guys talking about? And they immediately zip up because they know, mm, we don't, uh, I don't know, we're just talking about watermelons or something. You know, they don't talk about it. That's Mark 9, 9, 34. In Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, Luke tells us the same thing's happening. They're walking along, they're comparing who's going to be the greatest. With this addition that Jesus, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts. So even though we know from our study, Jesus has already told the disciples, here's how this is going to go. I am going to have a, a crown, and it's going to be through a cross. The leaders are going to kill me. He's, he's told them explicitly many times, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to a crown through a cross. Even though they'd heard this, they still thought in their heads, he's going straight to the throne. That's what's in their heads still. And they're still breathing the atmosphere of the sizing up kingdom, which led them in their debate to go, and this is hilarious about the disciples, like, well, I know how we'll solve this. We'll just ask Jesus to tell us who's the greatest. I mean, brilliant, right? So they just go up to Jesus and say, well, tell us among the 12 of us, where do we rank? Who's the greatest? And Jesus answers by calling over a kid. Some scholars think that it's highly likely this might have been Peter's child, because a lot of chapter 18 is around Peter's household. So maybe it was one of Peter's kids that Jesus brings in, and this child stands among the 12, and then Jesus says to them, this is my translation of it, unless you turn back to the mind and the heart of a child, you not only aren't going to be great in my kingdom, you're not getting in. And then he further tells them, again, my translation, the greatest in my kingdom is the one who is unconcerned about position. They've let that whole thing go. They're unconcerned about rank and position. You want to know who my greats are? That's my greats. And Jesus says that this child who culturally has no say, has no sway in the culture of Israel, is the ideal in his kingdom. Now, by the way, they're not, it's not the, he's not saying that the child is the ideal of perfect innocence. Some have sometimes interpreted this passage to say that's what Jesus is saying. That's not his point. Because if you just raise a child at all or babysit children, you know they're not perfectly innocent. So they're naive, but they're not innocent. So it's not the ideal of innocence. It's not about the ideal of purity. It's not the ideal of faith. Those are not Jesus' points. Jesus is saying that a child is the ideal of a person, not just children, of any person who has surrendered concern about position. 
and surrendered concern about the powers and the privileges that come with having a position. And in verse 5, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little ones, this kind of person who has surrendered their concern about position, if you welcome them in, it's like you're welcoming me face to face. And then in verse 6, Jesus goes to some sober places. He says, here's the importance of being a little one and having a a high regard of little ones in my kingdom. He describes the huge negative impact when his disciples are not great, his definition of greatness, when they're not a little one. He says this, he says, if anyone, he's talking to his disciples, any one of my disciples ends up causing a little one, remember we clarified, he's not talking about just kids, he's talking about anyone who has surrendered rank and position as their concern in order to enter the kingdom of God, anyone who takes one of them and causes them to stumble. The Greek word skandalizo, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, it's a word that in this context means causing a person to begin to distrust one whom they have every reason to, they should trust. Let me repeat that. To cause someone to begin to distrust someone who they have every reason that they should be trusting. So let me back up and say what Jesus is saying again. He's saying, if one of my disciples ends up causing one of my ones who have given up rank and position in order to follow me, and you cause them to begin to distrust the one that they should be trusting, namely me, then drowning would be a better consequence for them than the consequence of causing one of my little ones to stumble. Whoa. And of course, Jesus goes on in verse 7. He says, you want to know where this is going to happen the most? It's going to happen in the world, the sizing up kingdom of the world. It's going to happen. It's going to come where unbelieving people in the world are going to try to make Jesus' little ones stumble and fall and begin to distrust the one that they should trust. But if you look at verses 8 and 9, Jesus starts to talk to his disciples directly. And he says that they could potentially prove to be the aggressors causing one of Jesus' little ones to stumble. And to be sober about such a thing in their life. As I said when I was reading it, in the English, it's actually, it's translated causes you to stumble. If your right hand or your foot causes you to stumble or if your eye causes you to stumble. But when you read it in the Greek, it actually just says, if your hand or your foot or if your eye causes stumbling. If it's causing stumbling. Meaning Jesus is saying their hands and feet could be so committed to the stupid pursuit of rank that it could cause someone else to begin to distrust the one that they should be trusting. And so a real disciple would take drastic action to avoid doing that kind of damage. He says the eyes of a person, of a disciple, could be so stuck in the stupid pursuit of rank that it could cause one of Jesus' little ones to stumble. And a real disciple would take steps to gouge out that entire stupid perspective for the sake of not hurting other people. In fact, in my Bible expositor's commentary, it adds this, quote, This is sobering to think about. Quote, failure to deal radically with pride in their own lives betrays their allegiance to the world and threatens questions about their own eternity. Unquote. 
Now, thankfully, it's not us Christians who are going to wag the fingers at these people who cause stumbling and say, you're not going to heaven. That's for God to decide. But it raises questions. So this is the sober thing that disciples, true disciples are like, I'm going to take very seriously. I do not want to cause any one of Jesus's other little ones to stumble without my stupid pursuit of trying to rank myself. But here's the positive. Jesus says, when a disciple is great, they're humble, and they abandon all the concern about ranking, and they don't look down on Jesus' little ones. There's this huge, huge positive impact. And by the way, huge impact. we got to throw out all of our evangel stuff of the last 50 years of church growth movement and church success. Do you read what his example is? It's not thousands of people coming to a giant stadium to rock on for Jesus. It's more like the way a shepherd is overjoyed when he finds one little lost sheep. That's the picture of the kingdom. God the Father's overjoyed when one of his little ones helps another little one find their way into the bosom of the Father. And that's huge stuff. So here's Jesus' call to us. Right? We're trying to think very seriously and critically, doubling back, listening to Jesus. What have we missed? What are we not seeing about being a follower of Jesus? And here's what I think Jesus is saying. Is my great ones surrender all concern about rank. Those are my great ones. And it's not for us to say. That's for him to say. We're not looking at each other in church going, oh, they would be probably one of his great ones. That's not for us to say. Because if we're saying it, we're concerned about rank. But Jesus is saying, if you're asking me, my great ones, they're the ones that are not concerned about their position. Now, here's where this comes from. We've got to think critically about greatness and how God exists within God. I mean, talk about greatness. God, a holy, holy, holy God, thrice perfect God. How does God exist within God himself? Well, in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prays this beautiful prayer right before he takes the cross. And in the prayer in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. The hour has come. Glorify me as I am here to glorify you. And then a couple verses later, Jesus adds. He says, and by the way, this glorifying thing, this mutual glorifying thing, this has been going on since before the world began. To glorify means to praise and adore. It means to serve and to please and to do all of it out of love for another. That means, just within the nature of how God exists, that the three persons of God, the Trinity, they have been joyously pouring out praise and adoration and service and the pleasing of one another all out of a heart of love for each other, that they've been glorifying one another and pouring it into each other's hearts beyond measure that we can even imagine have been doing it for all eternity past and will continue to do it. They've been doing that. Pastor Timothy Keller, who was preaching on John chapter 17, he said this in this observation. I'll put it up on the screen. He says this, we have three persons not seeking their own glory. Do you see that? There's no ranking. But giving it to the other two. They do not demand love and glory, but freely give it. Now watch this. 
God created this world not to get anything from it, to get glory, but to share his glory with it. Now, I'll let you trip through that circus for the rest of this week. But what I want you to hear is this, is Jesus is telling all of his disciples that a disciple resembling the Trinity in their ability to be unconcerned about building and preserving their own glory, but is more interested in the praise and the adoration and the service and the pleasing out of love to God and to God's people and to a broken and lost world, those are people in his definition that he calls, these are my great ones. So do you want to be great? As defined by Jesus and his kingdom? Lay aside the performance-based significance project. Just lay it down. Now, but do this, laying it down knowing the gospel. We lay down the performance-based significance project knowing that your significance has already been defined by a trinity who doesn't have to share their glory with it. They're having a great time within the trinity. But they've already freely shared their glory with you. You don't have to prove significance anymore. So therefore, lay down the performance-based significance project. You're not going to find it in your job. You're not going to find it in your spouse. You're not going to find it in the world. You're not going to find it on your Instagram posts or your Facebook likes. You're not going to find it in any of those places. Lay it down. Do you want to be great as defined by Jesus? Surrender your concern about building and preserving your status. And by the way, again, preach the gospel to yourself. Well, what if I don't? If I lay, don't lay my down my status, if I lay down my status that I've built, I won't have status. No, that's not true, according to the gospel. So you lay down your status knowing that your status has been secured the moment you put your faith in Jesus because Jesus, the Son of God, has shared with you the entirety of his identity. Meaning you possess his same secure place within the Trinity that he has, and he gave it to you as a gift. You don't have to go around trying to secure status. It's already been given. Lay it down. Lean into what true humility is. C.S. Lewis once famously said, here's humility. Humility, quote, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. That's humility. And by the way, Jesus' great ones understand this little one kind of humility. It's so important. It's critically important. You want to know how important it is? Just ask the people who have been hurt just in the last decade by famous so-called great church leaders. Just ask them. The great church leaders, how much damage a disciple of Jesus who's a leader can do to one of Jesus' little ones when they do not surrender pride and rank as their personal pursuit. Just ask the people who've been damaged by the Bill Hybels and the James McDonald's and the Mark Driscoll's and the Ravi Zacharias and dear God, please pray for me that Andy Lewis doesn't end up on this list. Just think of who these people are and ask them how much damage can be done. Just ask the people who are hurt by regular disciples about how much damage a regular disciple of Jesus can do to one of Jesus' little ones when they don't surrender their pride and they don't surrender their rank. But also ask, we got to also talk about this, also ask the people who've been loved. They've been found by humble church leaders 
regular, humble Christians who surrendered their pride and their concern for rank and position in order to reach out in love and ask those people how much of a difference that made in their lives. Ask them too. So here's where this goes. I'm told I'm a fan of Mother Teresa. I'm told that when Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she started out, and I can relate to this, that when I started out, I was in the same place, that when she was young, she really wanted to be great. All right? You start out to do something, you want to be great at it. You want to be extraordinary. And so she wanted to be great in her calling, and she wanted to do great things for God, and she wanted to, in doing great things for God, be recognized that, hey, she did great things for God. She wanted those things. But through the humbling and often humiliating work of caring for sometimes the grossest of needs of the outcasts on the streets of Calcutta, she learned how to leave the sizing up kingdom of the world and to surrender her personal concern about rank. She was very, very clear that learning this, it didn't happen by merely knowing that Humility was Jesus' mark of one of his great ones. Like, she, was, she would tell you, it's like, just because I knew that that's what Jesus defines as greatness, I didn't just turn on a dime and go, okay, I'll be like that. She also said, um, it wasn't just because um, that she knew that humility could have a positive influence when it was present, or a really negative and evil presence when it was absent. And that helped her go, okay, I'll be humble. That wasn't what formed it in her. She says that humility is formed in this way, and I'll put it up on the screen. This is what she taught her sisters of mercy. Learn to be humble by doing all the humble work and doing it for Jesus. You cannot learn humility from books. You learn it by accepting humiliations. Humiliations are not meant to torture us. They're gifts from God. These little humiliations, if we accept them with joy, will help us to be holy, to have a meek and a humble heart like Jesus. St. Teresa of Calcutta. See, she's talking about the fact that the formation of humility, it involves an intentional pursuit. You don't just go, oh, I heard it in church. Maybe I'll be one of those someday. No. It's an intentional pursuit involving active and passive acceptance of humiliation. What I mean by active acceptance, it means it's active in the way that we, we excavate our own pride. We are committed to be excavators of our own pride and saying, there it is again. And to excavate it, and with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we extricate it. We take it out. We extricate the deep desire for rank from our hearts. That's what I mean by active participants in our humiliation. By passive participants, what I mean is it's in the way that we accept the ongoing humiliations that we endure in normal life. You don't get through this life in a broken world without having humiliations. We passively accept them as gifts in the formation of becoming little one greats of Jesus. So Jesus says, my great ones are the ones who surrender their concern about position and rank. And so the call for us is to be people who continually dig up and dump out the position project. It's for the rest of your life. 
to dig it up and dump it out. For the rest of your days, enter into the good work of opening up your soul to Jesus, not, not other people, to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, so that you and he can excavate and then extricate all of the sizing up kingdom garbage that's still in you. And by the way, like you've walked with Jesus, say 20 years, 30 years, and a lot of it's gone away. But I'm just going to tell you now, until the day Jesus brings you home and you see the glorious one face to face, there's still pockets. There's still, it's still in there. And when he brings you to new humiliations, that's when you see it. For the rest of our lives, when Jesus, with Jesus, dig up the hidden away position project, what's it going to look like for you to be continually active in exploring your heart and your motivations to see where you're concerned about position and the power and the privileges that could come with position, it still, ha it still has a hold on you. What's it going to look like for you to passively accept the normal humblings and humiliations in life as a gift? To come along and to remind you of the formation in you as one of the little ones of Jesus. And then, when you've done some digging up of the position project in your, in your life, and you see it for the garbage that is, bring it into the light and the grace of Jesus, and then dump it out. And here's how you can dump it out. Here's just a couple suggestions. One is, when you dump it out, celebrate the fact that you don't have to be extraordinary to Jesus to be wonderful to him. Let me repeat that. Celebrate as you're dumping this garbage. I don't have to be extraordinary amongst all these people in order to be wonderful to Jesus. That you're wonderful to the entire Trinity, no matter how this world ranks you, or how you rank you, or how your mom ranks you. So in dumping the garbage, celebrate the fact you're wonderful to him, no matter what, you, what the rank is given to you. In your dumping, laugh at the ridiculousness of your pride. I had a good laugh a couple weeks ago. I, I had the opportunity to do uh, a wedding, not, not Christian Alyssa's wedding, one prior, and somebody hadn't seen me in a ministry context for like 20 years, and they came up and they said, that was a really powerful ceremony, Andy, and boy, have you aged. <laughs> and, and, it just, and then the, just to feel the pride well up and go, I'm doing pretty darn good, and to be able to just, with the Holy Spirit, laugh and say, you know what, they're right, they're right, laugh. That's throwing out the garbage. You laugh with the Holy Spirit. That, that, that pride is just ridiculous. And throwing out the garbage is actively seek the smaller place that helps form your soul. Actively seek the un unseen acts of service. Even when you're languishing. When we're all languishing, still seek the unseen acts of serving. Actively seek the opportunity to love that person in that way that you know isn't going to give you anything or give you any recognition for it. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Um, and as they do, the question again is, do you want to be great in Jesus' eyes? Now, understand the question I'm asking carefully. I'm not asking if you want to be great in the eyes of the world great in the eyes of some significant person in your life or great in your own eyes. And that's not what I'm asking because that, that question is a fool's errand. 
I'm not even asking, and this is more typical project for the evangelical world of America. I am not asking if you want to be great in the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of the world and the eyes of some significant person in your life and in your own personal eyes. I'm not asking that because that's equally just as much of a fool's errand. I'm asking, do you want to be great under the gaze of Jesus? That's a different question. And you could say no. In fact, I think Jesus would encourage you to be honest, and if it's a no, tell him no. No, I don't want that right now. Because that's where the conversation in your life will then need to start, and that's okay. His grace can meet you there. But if you say yes, here's what Jesus is saying to you. Surrender the concern about position and become the kind of soul who is that by, and we're going to do this together. Here's what Jesus is saying. We're going to do this together for the rest of your days. We're going to dig up and we're going to dump out the ranking project. Let's pray. Father God, I'm, uh, I get overjoyed when I think about the description of you as the Trinity. Someday, someday we're all going to get to see it and just go, wow, how much you love within God. And that love has just spilled over and wants to be shared with us. And how you function and how you love is what you want in us. Lord, I'm just going to ask that you would do what is really a miraculous work of producing humility in us. This is not an easy project where we go, oh, I will do better at that starting Monday morning. It's a, it's a lifelong journey. And so, Lord, meet us, pour out your grace, but form us. This world needs, even if it's in one tiny little local church, a group of people who are humble, they're not concerned about their rank, and they are loving the people around them in their lives in the same way the Trinity loves within the Trinity. Lord, help to make us that kind of people. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Our Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.